Good morning. Welcome everyone to our weekend morning program. I'm so glad that to see so many people here. I had thought we'd normally have, well not normally, I don't know about normal, but we oftentimes have been closed the weekend of Thanksgiving, thinking that people were otherwise predisposed. But here you all are, so thank you very much for making time to come in today to the Zen Center. And as it is Thanksgiving weekend, I hope you all had a wonderful, maybe some time off, some extra time off to be with family and friends, to have maybe some yummy food, maybe do some yard work. <laughs> I was thinking of things people do on, on uh, long weekends. Um, so I thought, to, in thinking about this talk and thinking about the occasion of Thanksgiving, um, I recall like, thinking back to who are my teachers? Who are the people who've taught me uh, about things like gratitude? And some of you may know Reverend Yogan Steve Stuckey. Some of you may have known him when he was alive. He died seven years ago now? Six years ago, it's been a long time. He gave a Dharma talk um, right before he died, a couple months before he died. Actually, like I listened to the Dharma talk because I hadn't heard it in a while. The Dharma talk was given, it was his last Dharma talk that he gave before he passed. And in the Dharma talk, he describes that he, uh, that three weeks before this talk, he had no idea what was coming no idea what was about to come. And he was diagnosed with a pancreatic tumor. It was stage four cancer. And he was given maybe three to six months to live. And I think it was um, two months. I think he made it about two months before he passed. He died on New Year's Eve, just before the New Year. But in his Dharma talk, he gave this Dharma talk it was uh, held at Green Gulch Farm. It was an impromptu talk. It wasn't a scheduled talk. It was kind of like, okay, I'm ready to give a talk to the community. He was, at the time, the central abbot of the San Francisco Zen Center. You can check out his Dharma talk online. Uh, the title or the, the topic of his Dharma talk, uh, which was given in, in October, was on gratitude. And I remember Steve having practiced with him for many years at Tassajara. He was, he became the one of the abbots of San Francisco Zen Center. I think in two thousand nine. I can't remember exactly when, but he came to Tassajara to lead practice periods every other practice period. So he was there, living with us students, for three months at a time, and uh, we were very very lucky to have such a wonderful, beautiful presence with among us during that time. He was um, raised Mennonite, and then he practiced in, in uh, the Zen tradition, and he also practiced in the Native American tradition from a Native American teacher that he met uh, when he was living in Muir Wood, in your in, is it not, what's the name of the valley, Tim? Muir Woods is the Green Gulch. Yeah. Mill Valley. Who said that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, Mill Valley. Uh, a man named Harry Roberts. And so he, was, he would frequently weave in teachings from Harry Roberts into his Dharma talks, which I greatly appreciated. Um, so, highly recommend Steve's talk on gratitude. And then thinking further about teachers and their words of wisdom on the practice of gratitude, not just gratitude as something that is a, a passing feeling that arises in our hearts uh, when, the, when the conditions are right, right? That's oftentimes we think of gratitude as something that comes up when we have something to be grateful for, right? And uh, so I, I uh, um, another great teacher that I spent some time with, I was very, uh, 
very happy to be able to spend some time with whose main teaching is on the practice, the practice, not just the, the fleeting feeling, but the practice of gratitude is Brother David Stendelrost, who is a Benedictine monk who is now, I think he's probably 91, maybe 92, and he would come to Tassajara where I practiced every summer to give a, uh, to co-lead a um, retreat with my teacher, Ryushin Paul Haller, on this Christian Zen dialogue. And Brother David had actually practiced at Tassajara at one point. He was a student there, and he spent a practice period as a Zen student practicing at Tassajara. Um, and Brother David has a website. I think his mission, his main mission in life, is to encourage people to take up a practice of gratitude. And there's a website called, I think it's called grateful.com. And... Uh, Gratefulness.org. Gratefulness.org. Ah, yeah. thank you. Yes. <laughs> and, um, uh, yeah, Brother, Brother David is absolutely fantastic. So I'm, I want to talk about gratitude and my own practice of gratitude and how the, some of the pitfalls that we come into when we take up practice or what's, what the, the location of gratitude in our just general Zen practice. So maybe I should back up and just say, what is Zen practice, first of all? Anyone? If you had to say what Zen practice was, what the one sentence, what's the heart of Zen practice, what would you say it is? Entering the moment fully. Entering the moment fully, thank you. Zazen. Zazen? Training the mind. Training the mind. Mm -hmm. um, being present and mindfulness. Mindfulness, being present, entering the moment fully, zazen, training the mind. Just this. Just this. Mm -hmm. These all have a similar theme. <laughs> Sincerity. Sincerity. <clears throat> ah. That's a great word. Reminds me of the great pumpkin. <laughs> Sitting still through the storms and the sunlight. Mm -hmm. Sitting still, still, finding stillness amidst su storms Storm. and sunlight. Okay. Yeah, very. Intimacy with all things. Mm. That sounds very much like sincerity as well. Intimacy with all things. So we have some themes here, right? One major theme is just this, the moment, being present, being mindful, being just this, right? And then a little bit further, there's through storms, through sunlight, right? The word sincerity is interesting. I, does anybody know the etymology of the word? I do. Please. <laughs> um, I did not plan him. <laughs> the, the, the sin part means without, and the serity part is, is putty. And it's a reference to um, building a long time ago when they would make the columns and, and so forth, and they would, if there were any like imperfections or cracks, they would fill those in with putty. But you weren't getting a real picture of what was going on. So sincerity means without adding on extra stuff. Yeah, how many of you knew that? Yeah, isn't that cool? So, thank you. <laughs> I could have done it better myself. Thank you, uh, Bill, for bringing up sincerity. This practice, so not using putty. Like, how many things in our lives do we think of we, we put putty on them to make them more palatable, right? To make them look perfect. So sincerity, as a practice, is being willing to be imperfect, being willing to be with flaws. Right? So again, this, uh, in terms of um, Zen practice, when we put ourselves into the moment, whether we're sitting zazen or uh, washing vegetables that need to be chopped, 
cleaning a house that needs that people are coming to. I spent a lot of time cooking on, <laughs> on Thursday. And uh, um, at one point, someone asked me the question of like, you know, this is so much effort. Like, why, why, you know, you don't need to do so much. Or I think my sister was, who was coming over for dinner, she said, I said something like, oh yeah, I'm gonna have to clean the house or something. I mentioned cleaning the house and she said, oh, don't take the, don't take the effort. Yeah, don't, you don't need to clean the house, which I appreciated. But I cleaned the house anyway. <laughs> and the feeling was, I actually had this feeling of during the day of how grateful I am to have some a place, right? To have a place to offer, to invite people to, to have the means to procure uh, foods that can then be given and enjoyed, right? To be able to have the hands and the speed, the dexterity, in order to you know, do some vacuuming or dusting or what have you, right? So as I'm kind of immersed in the activity, the bustle of preparing Thanksgiving dinner, to just the, the fact that I was able to be there and able to offer something made me feel really happy, really grateful to be uh, where exactly where I was, to be alive and to have, uh, have this ability to give, right? Now, if I had gone into it, which I have done many times in the past, uh, the process of cleaning and preparing a meal and so forth, if I had gone into it with some idea, I mean, obviously we, we, we do these things because we have some idea. What, what brings us to, you know, to, za to sit zazen oftentimes could be ah, I have some idea that it's going to help my life. It's going to benefit me in some way, right? And then we get into our practice and we start learning about uh, some of the teachings, especially in the Soto Zen school of Shinryu Suzuki Roshi. He's the founder of this form of, or this form mm -hmm. of, he's a teacher in the Soto Zen tradition who brought this practice from Japan to America, to San Francisco in the 50s. When we get into the practice, we hear from him that you can't have any gaining idea. <laughs> or the gaining idea, not that you can't have that, but that the gaining idea itself is, uh, can be an obstacle, a hindrance. Right? So reflecting on this as I'm, you know, okay, I've got this to do and this to do, and oh, I forgot I was going to make this other dish, and I totally forgot. And, you know. So in the midst of all of that, there's a goal, there's a purpose, like the purpose is to prepare a meal for, to serve for Thanksgiving dinner, right? And to have it be in a, a place that's, you know, mostly free of detritus and cat fur and <laughs> so forth, right? Uh, a clean place, clean and welcoming, right? And yet, if I had, if I were gripped by a notion that, oh, this is what we're being, we're serving, this is how the house needs to look, going into it with some kind of a gaining idea, I could get myself super stressed out. And anybody who lives with me would know that I have the ability to do that, to get stressed <laughs> out about, you know, oh, this needs to be this way, right? Having an idea about how it's supposed to be. We go in to our practice with an idea. We can't avoid it. Our brain just creates ideas about how things are supposed to be, right? Try, try not doing that. <laughs> And very soon you'll be like, oh, brain, you're not supposed to be doing this thing. So this is the conundrum of our Zen practice, is that we go in, we have some idea about, you know, enlightenment maybe. Maybe we just want some peace. Maybe we think that uh, being settled and still is a virtue and that if we are able to sit ourselves down for long enough, for as many times as we can, that we ourselves will be made better, right? But Suzuki Roshi very frequently undermines that idea, kind of knocks that idea on its head. So I want to quote from one of his talks. This is from a 1967 first night of, I think it may be the first night, it says uh, December 1st, 1967. It's an evening Sushin lecture. So he's, maybe this is probably the first night or of the Rohatsu Sushin that they were doing at Tasahara. 
<clears throat> he says, this afternoon in my lecture, I told you why we should practice Zazen and what is our practice. After all, our practice is quite different from other activity we have in everyday life. Of course, according to some schedule, we practice Zazen at certain times of every day. So you may think now it is time to have a meal, it is time to recite a sutra, and it is time to sit. So you think there's not much difference between Zazen practice and other activities we have. And then he says, actually, if you understand the true meaning of Zazen, there is no difference. Whatever you do, that is Zazen practice. As long as we have innate Buddha nature, what we do is an expression of our true nature. And if it is so, whatever we do is that practice, true practice. But usually, because we do something with some aim and we want to do something in a more perfect way, sometimes you do not, you are not satisfied with what you do, and sometimes you will be pleased with what you did. When this kind of discrimination happens, that activity is not any more true activity. At least your understanding of the activity, what you have done, uh, your understanding of the activity you have done is not true activity itself. It is already a dead idea within your mind. And actual limitless activity is no more. So if you think that Zazen practice will be the same as our usual practice, then there is big misunderstanding. Okay. Hmm. Okay, there's a Whatever you do, that is usually that is actually our true practice, but you are pleased with the limited pleasure of the practice and you do not know the boundless meaning of our everyday life. And we always complain with what you have to do or with what you have done or what you should do. So you are always forced into something in your everyday life. You feel as if you are living in some certain framework. If you come to Tassajara, you should observe our way. But when you are, you do not realize the true meaning of your life. A rule is just a kind of framework in which you are put. But so you think Zazen is the same, a kind of rule you have to do. But if you realize what is our true practice, you will have no more this kind of mixed up idea. In its true sense, Zazen should not be practiced because Zazen gives you some advantage in your life, or Zazen should not be dismissed because of its hardship of practice. Why we practice Zazen is just because we always spoil our life and spoil our practice, true practice in our everyday life. So our effort is directed to do the opposite way. We do not practice our way to attain something, but we practice Zazen to be free from a dualistic gaining idea. So, being free from a dualistic gaining idea. Do you all know what a dualistic gaining idea looks like and feels like? Anyone, can you give me an example of a dualistic gaining idea? Getting money and losing money. Mm. Yes, a, a clear tally. Thought about the stock market. The stock market, the dualistic idea. You either have stock or you don't. <laughs> it's going up or down. It's going up or down. So a tally, some kind of tally. Self-improvement. Yes, self-improvement. It's very hard. This is, this is one of the first things that any new Zen student runs into, is this question about effort. Right? On the one hand, great effort is needed. Right? You're not going to go into something and, and take it up if you're not going to exert some effort. Right? You don't want to do it in a half-hearted way, so you want to put in great effort. However, what's the, what's the intention, or where does it, the effort, what's the origin of the effort? So, Eric, thank you. The, uh, you know, bringing up a dualistic idea of self-improvement. Right? When Suzuki Roshi talks about, you know, this is not just rules. We're not following rules. 
there's something in, in the precept class. So we're in the midst of a practice <coughs> period on uh, sila, precepts, samadhi, uh, concentration, and wisdom, prajna. And there's a class that's been meeting um, weekly on Tuesday evenings, the precept study group. Um, it's been a very lively group. I think there's a lot of good discussions in that group. We've covered a lot, but we are just barely scratching the surface. There's a gaining idea right there, right? This feeling of like, are we doing enough? Are we getting enough done, right? How do you go through your life, so, I mean, without a gaining idea? What would it even look like to not have a gaining idea, an idea of gain or loss? I'm doing this because it's going to have this result. This is the result I want, therefore I'm going to do it. Right? The feeling of I need to become a better X. I need to be more patient. I need to be more kind. I need to be more generous. I need to be more mindful. Right? Those all may be true. However, when you go into the process of coming to a temple and sitting down, what's the first thing that you encounter when you sit? A wild mind. A wild mind, yeah. Right? And so mind training, this is another you know, aspect of our Zen practice, is mind training. What do we do with a wild mind? Do we grapple it and hold it down and beat it? <laughs> Stop being wild. You might at first. Yeah, right? We might. And then we, uh, what do we find when we do that? It makes it worse. It just gets worse. Yeah. Right. So eventually we maybe back up, we let go. And we just, what? What do we do with our minds? Surf. Watch it. We watch it. Right. I keep talking about this ox, the, the, uh, this question of how do you control an ox, or think of a bull, like a, a maybe an upset bull. Like how do you control a bull, this giant massive creature with horns that's angry, let's just say, right? <coughs> the Zen answer is you give it a wide field and you watch it. I would even add, maybe even lovingly, kindly. You watch it, but kindly. Like how, how, that's how you control it, right? You're gonna control it by wrangling it? We try. <laughs> we try and then we get gored a few times. And then we're like, okay. <laughs> so, so, and then, um, <clears throat> in the, one of the th questions that came up in the pre precept class, I'm so, uh, I'm really happy with the opportunity to be doing the precept class, actually, because people bring up such great things. And, uh, aha, for example, actually, let me just put in a plug for our web forum. How many of you know we have a forum on the website? A couple of people? This web forum is intended as a place for people to have discussions, to post things, and uh, it, I realize it's just yet another digital platform, and there's so many out there. Um, but just so people are aware, we do have this uh, availability for anybody who wants to be a participant. You don't need to be a pledging member of Austin Zen Center to, to become part of the membership, the, the forum. You just need to contact a web manager and ask for a username and password, and you two can get, a, in, uh, get access to the web forum. But in the web forum and in the class, some of the things that have come out, uh, one, one question that came up in, recently in the, um, in the precept class the question of about vow, about making a vow, and we chant vows here, and actually at the end of this talk, we will be chanting four vows that are impossible. They're impossible, but we chant them. And somebody in the class asked the question, wouldn't it be better not to state your intention or state a vow, not to make a vow that you think you're in danger of breaking? or violating in some way. Like, you know you can't possibly do this, so isn't it better to not make that vow and break it than to, you know, sorry, to not make the vow than to make the vow and then break it? Like, isn't it 
generating worse karma for yourselves to say you're going to do something. Conventionally speaking, it makes sense. You don't want to say you're going to do something and then not do it and, you know, inconvenience other people or you know, so forth, right? So conventionally speaking, you would say, don't say you're going to do something that you don't feel like you're able to do, right? So the question came up about our vows or saying that you want to follow precepts. And so this turned into a little bit of a discussion. And I was really happy with the question. Actually, I've been thinking about the question. And um, I, it reminded me of the story of the drunken Brahmin. You all know the story of the drunken Brahmin? So back in ancient times, the time of the Buddha, uh, the Buddha was with his monks practicing in the forest. And uh, in the evening, a drunk man, uh, one of the, a Brahmin, somebody from the Brahmin caste, the priestly caste, not a Buddhist, but somebody who came in, he came in from some party that was happening somewhere nearby. You could even hear the, the sounds of the party happening. But he came in, and he had been drinking quite a bit, and he stumbled into the Buddha's camp, uh, we call it a camp, but into the area where they were practicing, and asked the Buddha if he could ordain as a monk. And Ananda, the Buddha's uh, half-brother and uh, recorder and, and attendant for 45 years, said to the Buddha, I don't know if he's really like in, of sound mind to, to ask for ordination. And the Buddha didn't reply, but instead just said, you know, called to one of his disciples and said, please bring... Uh, uh, a razor and a bowl of water and prepare for an ordination. So the Buddha was going to go for it. Right? This drunken Brahmin comes in and, you know, some of the, so some of the Buddha's disciples are kind of like, I don't know if he's really serious because he's drunk. How could he, you know, he may just be playing around or he may, he's not even aware of his, what he's doing. But the Buddha went forward and shaved his head, removed his clothing and gave him a robe and a bowl, which is what you get when you ordain. You get a robe and a bowl and a shaved head. <laughs> That's pretty much it, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and, the, and the Brahmin kind of passed out from being inebriated and woke up the next morning. When he woke up, he discovered that he had no hair, no clothes, now he's wearing this robe and he's just got this bowl and he kind of, you know, pieced together what happened and just kind of flipped out and, and decided to run away before anybody noticed that he was, uh, that he had gone. So he disappeared. And one of the Buddha's disciples, I can't remember which one, said to the Buddha, well, you know, what did you expect? Like, he wasn't, you know, we tried to tell you that he, you know, he wasn't really in it for, he was not really going to do this. And the Buddha's response was, we don't know. We don't know what, uh, what the, the seed of coming to ask for ordination, that seed has been planted and watered. And it may take months, years, lifetimes for the merit of this intention, this intention that this, even in a drunken state, this intention, I want to I walk this path of practice. We don't know what the, uh, the causes and conditions that led to that and where that will go, where that will flow from here. But just having the intention in and of itself is planting wholesome, positive seeds. So my own teacher, I think I've said this, told you the story before, but my own teacher, when I asked him for ordination, he told me that story. I was kind of like, <laughs> what are you saying? <laughs> So this question of, isn't it better not to make a vow that is impossible or you know, maybe even improbable, let alone impossible? Like, should we, should we go for making a vow? Should we set our intentions? Even if we know that you know, I don't, I'm not going to be able to hold this. I'm going to make mistakes. I'm going to have flaws. I'm not going to be perfect. Should we still go ahead and say, yes, I will? Yeah, I'm getting some nods. Yeah. What does that do? Sets your intention. 
Yeah, setting an intention. Right. What does setting an intention do to our activity? Sorry? It directs it, there's a direction. Yes, right? There's an orientation, so there's a movement towards. You know. It may be an asthmatope, right? It could be like gradually getting towards but never reaching. Yeah. It goes against our usual dualistic tendency of, well, I'm going to do a little cost-benefit analysis and see, do my market research and see like how effective this is and whether I'm going to gain from it. Look at the profit and loss statements and make my decision based on sound, you know, sound financial judgment or whatever. Right? That is how we normally are in the world. Right? It seems ridiculous to, to the ordinary, you know, understanding to not, you know, operate in this way. Right? Look at cost, look at benefit, make our decisions based on what seems like the most beneficial thing for us, right? Or people we love or so forth, right? And so with the Buddha going forward with this ordination, he was teaching. It was a teaching moment. It doesn't matter how small this, the, the offering is or where it's, in some sense, in that moment the Buddha felt that he wasn't, the, this drunken Brahmin had some spark, a little spark. It could be really small. It could be in a drunken haze. But the, the spark was enough okay, for the Buddha to say, bring me the razor. Let's go with this. Right. Later on in Suzuki Yoshi's talk, he says, he's talking about... Um, well, he's talking about being grateful. And he says, usually, uh, usually when you say, I enjoyed very much, you say after you enjoyed it. And then he laughs. So it is too late to say that. He laughs again. When you are actually, you know, enjoying it, you have no words. You have no feeling whatsoever. You don't know what you are doing. Later, you may say, that was very good. And then he laughs. This sashin, so he's talking in the middle of this retreat. This sashin was very good. But when you are, you know, practicing it, what you will say, you know? You didn't enjoy it at the time, but later you say it was very good. <laughs> <laughs> so someone may think it is not so good. Which is good? Which is right? Maybe both is right or both is wrong. And then he laughs again. <laughs> so what, when we say uh, what we're thankful for, right? Um, I have a... What is it? Ah, here. This is from Brother David. People usually think that gratitude is saying thank you, as if this were the most important aspect of gratitude. And then he says, and this is just beautiful, the most important aspect of the practice of gratitude, or sorry, the pra practice of grateful living is trust in life. Every human being, every day, has to make a practical choice between trusting life or not trusting life. Again and again in life, one is tempted to distrust and fear. Fear and distrust, this is the same. If you try out distrusting life and always questioning life, you find that it makes you absolutely miserable. Or you can try trusting life and whatever comes up, saying, well, maybe I don't like it, but I trust that life gives me good things, that life itself is trustworthy. To live that way is what I call grateful living. Because then you receive every moment as a gift. And really, the gift within the gift is opportunity. This is when you stop long enough to ask yourself, what is the opportunity in this moment? You look for it and then take advantage of that opportunity. It's as simple as that. So here, Brother David talking about the practice of gratitude. Right. As opposed to the feeling, when we think of gratitude as something that just comes because of our, the conditions, it's roping us to our discriminative mind, to weighing pros and cons and saying, oh, this is actually good for me, I'm grateful for it, versus being able to accept 
like we do in zazen in the moment whatever the through the storms through the sunshine whatever's arising reality as it's unfolding in this body and mind in this particular moment to be able to turn towards it and say what's the opportunity here The other day, I, I received a, an email that was very disturbing and upsetting to me. I won't go into the details of why it was disturbing and upsetting, but I took it very personally, and I felt hurt, and I felt disrespected, and I felt like angry and just frustrated, and yeah, it was a lot. There was a lot of energy in receiving an email, and obviously, it comes from somebody who I value very much. Otherwise, it wouldn't have had that uh, impact on me. But I had to, you know, this happened like right around, uh, you know, in my, in my activity of, of preparing for Thanksgiving. And, and it was kind of like to have it happen at a time when I was already kind of looking at the picture of uh, what is gratitude and where did I learn about gratitude from and what's, what's the important thing to remember here to be given this stinking pile of shit that I did not ask for <laughs> in the midst of it, right? And to know this, que have this question of like, what is the opportunity here, right? Nobody wishes to receive nasty emails that, or, you know, emails that are upsetting. Nobody wishes to receive bad news. But having this context of looking at what am I thankful for and having this kind of drop into my awareness and seeing my own reactivity, right? One of the things in the precept class that we've been talking about is this, uh, uh, to be able to take a step back and look at not knowing right? this whole, what's the whole picture here. We don't know the whole picture. How do we step back and not know? Normally, the usual mind, the usual mind is run by, is uh, fueled by three things. The sort of delu delusional mind is fueled by greed and hatred or uh, anger and confusion or delusion, right? We have an opportunity to um, to play with that, to practice with that. So, this question of what is there if something comes up? Uh, I think we did a we did an exercise the last precept class where we had the question um, with a s small group discussions on the question. Uh, let me see if I can remember the question. How is Everything that happens, no, this is not right. Does anybody, anybody from the class? Mary, yes. The question was how do you take care? How do you take care of your, it was like delusions or your desires, your hindrances. How do you take care of them? And this was coming from a Zagroshi talk where he talked about the practice of taking care of everything. So how do we take care of something that is Conventionally speaking, something we want to get rid of, right? My delusions, the things that, that uh, make me reactive, make me anxious, make me fearful, make me mistrust. How do I get rid of those things, right? That's our usual way of dealing with things that we don't want in our lives is to, you know, cut them out, excise them, and separate from them. And so this exercise, this discussion, taking up this idea from Suzuki Roshi, how do we take care of even our own delusions? How do we take care of things that we think of as, we don't want to take care of that thing, we want to get rid of that thing because it's uh, unsavory to ourselves maybe, to our communities, to whoever, right? So we took up this practice of how do we take care of even that which we want to rid ourselves of? And Brother David's idea of trusting life, looking at things like our emotions of fear or anxiety, 
um, and how they um, they create a, a bypass of being in the moment. Right? As soon as there's something that we can we can get riled up about, we can lose the moment. We can lose our connection to the moment. Suzuki Roshi. Um, Again, describing Zazen, he says, in this way, if you observe your way, whatever it is, okay, this is again heralding back to like what is our Zen practice is to sit and accept everything that's going on. Our mental states, our body aches and pains, um, our drunken Brahman, right? How do we accept all of it? He says, in this way, if you observe your way, whatever it is, zazen practice, eating meals or taking a bath, whatever you do, that is true practice. Although it may be difficult to understand if I say, you do not take your bath because you are dirty. You do not wash your face because your face is dirty. We say, what it means is your practice of your everyday activity should not be involved in too, too much in some restrictive idea. You should obtain freedom in your way. And you should realize the limitless meaning of our activity. You should not be, you should not overvalue, or what do you say? You should not evaluate too much or too less. So to do something with the right feeling is the purpose of practice. To do something with the right feeling is the purpose of our practice. Oftentimes when studying precepts, which, does um, anybody here who doesn't know what the precepts, when I say precepts, what they're referring to? 16 Bodhisattva precepts? Okay. So even when we take up something like precepts, one of the first things that that comes up in a take, taking up ethical standards or rules or uh, guiding principles is a feeling of like, okay, I need to be on this to know what the difference is between this and that, right? So our capacity to discriminate comes up very strongly when we take up any kind of uh, guiding principles or rules, right? Precepts. But over and over and over again, teachings on what is the what is the intention what is the intention of of picking up our practice is it to make everything better i mean that may be there again this is something that brings us to our practice and yet that in and of itself gets in the way right it may get us in the door but once we're in the door we can let go this is the famous uh, description of using a raft to get to the other shore. Right? We get this where we have to get to the, we want to get to the other shore, so we build this raft, we get to the other shore. What do we do with the raft? Do we carry it around with us? No. <laughs> we leave it. We discard it. So in, uh, in Steve Stuckey's practice of gratitude, he would frequently talk about this, not just in that one talk, but throughout his teaching. He described it as, uh, he described a practice of every evening before going to sleep, he would sit on the edge of his bed and he would recall, he would just bring up the, he would say the word. If something came, he would, that would be what came. But if nothing came right away, he started his practice by saying the word gratitude. Just saying the word and giving some space. Right? When I say giving space, do you know what I mean by that? Anybody not know what I mean by giving space? Watching what comes up. Watching what comes up, yes. Mm -hmm. Giving a wide berth to it, yes. Allowing. Allowing, yes. Mm -hmm. I would even say the practice of welcoming. 
the practice of being welcoming to what comes up, creating a space that's you're allowing, not just even not even just allowing, but like you're welcoming whatever comes up without regard to whether it's positive, negative, or neutral. It's very important. Oftentimes people have the idea that practice is about getting rid of the negative and, and just keeping the positive and not being open to the negative. But this practice is actually a practice of complete wholeness. Complete wholeness. It has to include everything. As soon as we start discriminating and cutting out pieces, uh, we get into trouble pretty quickly. So he's had this practice of sitting on the edge of his bed and just saying the word gratitude and seeing what came up in the space that he had created to receive it. And it could be for small things, it could be for big things, but just the act of looking, the act of opening up that space and looking to see what pops up into it. That's how he described his practice as a practice of gratitude. Now, I would say... Uh, for anyone who tr decides to take up a gratitude practice, the one thing that is a pitfall that you might run into is that when you say the word gratitude, nothing comes up. Or maybe what comes up is all the things that you're angry about. <laughs> and it's okay. It's okay. You can let that, just let, just notice it and let it fall away. Give some more space, right? You don't need to reject anything. So even when you, if you were to do this practice and something, you know, the things that you were complaining about come up, how can you accept those, to welcome those, right? Welcoming those, the act of welcoming, oh, this is what my mind is throwing out at me when I try to practice gratitude, you know, and then it could be a judgment, there could be a judgment, like, ah, oh, I'm such a terrible practitioner, I'm, you know, should just stop sitting, or who knows, right, you could, or, or you could get, you know, uh, gripped by a fantasy of how you were wrong this one time and there's nothing to be grateful for, or, right? It can, you know, you can go quite, quite far in this. But how to just take up the process itself as something to be grateful for. Right? Again, by giving space, by looking, by looking for the opportunity that arises. And then with Brother David, ooh, I'm running out of time. I'm going to stop in a second, I want to say what uh, this, this quote that I'm quoting from Brother David came recently. Um, he, he was interviewed about the fires that are happening in California right now. Uh, he was asked, do you have a practical way of practicing gratitude? And Brother David says, yes. Stop, look, go. That is, it's, the simp it's as simple as that. Stop, look, go. The first is to stop and pause long enough. Again, this is the creation of space. The second is to look for the opportunities to find gratitude. Then go, take advantage of it. Grateful living is based on having trust and taking advantage of the opportunities to live a joyful life. People who haven't tried it don't believe it, but most of life is an opportunity to enjoy. When you try it, you find it to be true. Think of all the things you take for granted. Breathing, walking, simply being alive, having eyes to see, having friends, having something to eat. And later on he says, even in politics or in the office or in the family, there are things against which we have the opportunity to protest and say, this is as far as I go. But, these are also opportunities to be joyful in the midst of unhappiness, to enjoy life. Stop, look, go, with, the, with the, even just the simple phrase of stop, look, go, many find difficulty in the stop. Because we live in a very fast society. People get carried away and get ahead of themselves, so we need reminders, constant reminders, actually, to stop. One has to find out for oneself the best ways. <clears throat> but often, in the beginning, something new might be good. For instance, when you get into the car, you can train yourself for one second or a fraction of a second. It does not take much for one second or a fraction of a second to wait before turning the key in the ignition. 
that's the stop. Then we look for the opportunity to be grateful. We have the gift of the car, something to get around in, and then we go. We go and take advantage of the gift, which can be a joyful ride. Or in the morning before we open our eyes, and this is one of the things that we've been doing in the precept class as well, we can train ourselves for one split second to stop and keep our eyes closed. Before opening them, we can look for gratitude such as, I have eyes and I can look. And then he says something that I think is just really the, the point of this talk. <laughs> he says, anything we do mindfully can give joy. Anything we do mindfully can give joy. He says, I'm, in, uh, I'm, I'm <clears throat> helping everybody to live fearlessly in terms of the advice he can give about, he gives about making this a better world. He says, help everyone to live fearlessly. You know that one of the gifts of a bodhisattva, there are many ways of giving gifts, right? There's, there's the gift of your attention. There's the gift of uh, uh, resources, financial resources or other gifts in kind. There's the gift of teachings, giving teachings. And then one of the fourth gift of a bodhisattva is the gift of fearlessness. Imagine fearlessness as a gift. And he says, is his main advice is help everyone to live fearlessly. All that goes wrong comes from fear. The opposite of fear is trust in life. So say to each other, fear not. Fear not or trust in life that would make a completely different world. So I encourage everyone, as you go along your uh, Thanksgiving weekend, fear not. Encourage others to fear not. Find that, you know, stop, look, and go. Find that moment of stillness where you can just drop in this question of, not even a question, just the word gratitude to drop that in there and see what bubbles forth. This is the greatest gift. There's so much to be grateful for in terms of this practice, which includes uh, every single one of us in this room. Thank you very much for your practice. <laughs>